Mark chapter 9 this morning, please. Mark chapter 9. We still have two of the books that we're discounting at half price this month uh, up here. The Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung and The Incomparable Christ by J. Oswald Sanders. Both of those are half price. We're not ordering any more of those, so if you're thinking, well, I'll just wait a while. The first come, first serve, so that we've only got one of each. So, Actually, I think I did see one other of The Hole in Our Holiness back there. But uh, if you're interested in those, I highly recommend both books. Mark chapter 9. And actually, you know what I think? I was just sitting there thinking about this as, uh, as I was listening to Jeff play. And I, I think we'll back up and start reading in Mark chapter 8 and verse 27 because the context is important. So let's start there. We're going to preach from chapter 9, but let's start reading Mark 8, verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. I ask for your guidance and your... your uh, your instruction now as we uh, attempt to look into it and understand it. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit. 
Help me, Lord, to say what I should, not say anything I ought not. And uh, give boldness, I pray. I pray for a, a word from you today that is uh, uh, life-changing. I pray that if there's anybody here who has not yet trusted Christ, that they will be unable to escape uh, the conclusion they need to do that this day. Uh, save souls, we pray. And encourage believers. I just pray that you'll teach us from this glorious, glorious moment that took place in the life of our Savior and these three disciples. And uh, I just pray you'll bless it to our hearts. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the old days on Sinai were tempests and dark cloud, and God was there in lightning, thunder, and trumpet loud. Upon a fairer mountain, where pure snows lay congealed, stood Jesus in his glory, the very Christ revealed. His raiment, white and glistening, white as the glistening snow, his form a blaze of splendor the like no sun can show. His wondrous eyes resplendent in ecstasy of prayer, his radiant face transfigured to heaven's own beauty there. What an amazing sight this must have been. Jesus took three of his disciples, the three that made up his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and together they ascended a mountain. And once they were there, they were visited by two other men from the past, Moses and Elijah. And while they were there, Jesus was transfigured before them. Peter, James, and John were given a glimpse of just who Jesus really was. must have been a truly astonishing experience. Now, I've mentioned this before, and you know that my brain works in certain weird ways. And in one of those ways is whenever I'm looking at a passage of Scripture like this, I tend to ask a lot of questions of it. And I actually commend that method to you. Ask questions of the Scripture. And as I think about this passage, there are some questions that come to my mind. First of all, I can't get past verse 1, chapter 9 and verse number 1, without asking, uh, what in the world was Jesus referring to there when he said, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Obviously, those who were standing there at that time did all die. And best of my understanding, Jesus has not come back yet. And it's been over 2,000 years or approximately 2,000 years later. So how was that promise fulfilled? Or was that promise fulfilled? Well, there's various different explanations that have been offered for that, various interpretations. Some say it was fulfilled in the resurrection. Some say it was fulfilled in the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Some say it was fulfilled in the immediate and miraculous spread of Christianity. And certainly those present at that time did see those things. And so it's possible. But most say, and I believe that it is the correct interpretation, that it was fulfilled six days later at the Transfiguration. That's the way it is presented in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, and I think that that is what the truth was. Six days later, Jesus gave a preview to Peter, James, and John of the glory of the coming kingdom. There's another question that comes to my mind, a question that I I want to ask what I think about this, and it's a simple one. I mean, what, where, where did this take place? In verse number 2, it says that he went up on a high mountain. Where was it? Tradition tells us that they went to Mount Tabor, but that is unlikely. Mount Tabor is a long, long ways away uh, from Caesarea Philippi, where they started from here. Not only that, it's not a high mountain. Mount Tabor is more like a bump. It's only a 1,000 feet high. Mount Hermon, on the other hand, which some of us have seen as we've gone to Israel, is the highest point in all of Israel. 
And it is uh, only 12 miles away from Caesarea Philippi, 9,200 feet high. Every time I visited Israel, Mount Hermon has been capped with snow. And so most likely that's where this took place. They ascended Mount Hermon, and Jesus was transfigured there. And, of course, another question that comes to my mind is why? (laughs) Why would they leave, trek 12 miles, climb 9,200 feet in the air? What were they doing? And, uh, of course, as I mentioned, the account, of the, the account of the transfiguration occurs in all three Gospels, and so we can look at the others, and, and Luke actually does answer that question for us. He says that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And so there's why they went up there. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. That's how Luke presents this. So they went up there to pray. Imagine a prayer meeting on a mountain with Jesus Christ himself. But it is mildly amusing to me that just as many people sleep through prayer meetings today, the disciples also almost missed the whole thing because they slept through a good portion of it. But, of course, the most important question is what in the world happened on that mountain? What happened up there? And, of course, our text is verse number two. He was transfigured before them. He was transfigured before them. Now, that word transfigured is from the Greek word metamorphothē, which gives us our English word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. Walvert explains it like this. He says it means to be changed into another form, not merely a change in outward appearance. For a brief time, Jesus' human body was transformed, glorified, and the disciples saw him as he will be when he returns visibly in power and glory to establish his kingdom on earth. Another commentator says, for a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory which was always in the depths of his being rose to the surface for that one time in his earthly life. Or put another way, he slipped back into eternity to his pre-human glory. It was both a glance back and a look forward into his future glory. J. Oswald Sanders, in this excellent book, The Incomparable Christ, He compares all three gospel accounts uh, of the transfiguration, and here's what he concludes. He says, these descriptions, all three of these accounts, make it clear that the illumination was not merely external as from a spotlight. The change came from within. First of the countenance, and then the garments, which had the translucent whiteness of pure light. Common to all three gospels are the two features of dazzling whiteness and blazing light. The word glistering means to emit flashes of light. And so combining the three descriptions, we have the purity of snow, the majesty of lightning, and the beneficence of light emanating from the person of the Lord. He was transfigured before them. What a sight. Can you imagine what it must have looked like? After Peter's great confession in chapter 8, And his subsequent misunderstanding immediately thereafter. Peter just didn't quite understand that the suffering Savior part of things. He didn't understand the need for the cross. And so immediately after that, Jesus gave him, as well as James and as well as John, a glimpse into what awaited. Yes, he was saying, there is a cross to come. And yes, there is suffering and death to come in the near future. But that's not the end of the story. There was so much more glory and majesty and eternity with Christ. He appeared to them on that mountain in a form that was unmistakably indicating who he was, the Messiah, the Son of God. 
Anyone familiar with the prophet Daniel would have picked up on the, the imagery immediately. Daniel said in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and its wheels a burning fire. Anybody who knew the Psalms would have picked up the imagery immediately. Psalm chapter 104 and verse number 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God. You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens. Like a curtain. At the same time that Jesus was giving these disciples this astonishing glimpse into what he was, who he was, uh, something else happened. Two men appeared there with him. Verse number four. And of course, I don't know about you, but again, questions come to my mind. All kinds of questions come to my mind as I think about these two guys standing there talking with Jesus. The first one, of course. The scripture actually answers, but we ask the question, who were they? Who were these two guys? And all three gospels tell us the same thing. It was Moses and it was Elijah. But then the next question that comes to mind is, well, why Moses and why Elijah? What was the significance of these two guys and why were they there? Uh, you know, were they supposed to represent something? There's all kinds of people from the Old Testament that could have been there. Why not Adam? Why not Abraham? Why not Jeremiah? Why not David? Solomon? All kinds of people that we could think of. What is specific about Moses and Elijah? And of course, again, several answers are suggested. Moses was there representing the law. Elijah representing the prophets. These two were both very significant in the history of Israel. Both had spoken with God on a mountain before. Moses had gone up on a mountain to receive the law in the first place, and Elijah had gone up on a mountain to restore the worship of Jehovah in the great battle with the prophets of Baal. They had both had unusual ends. Moses died on Mount Nebo, uh, but nobody knows where he's buried because God took care of that. So it was an unusual end. Elijah, of course, was raptured in a chariot of fire and just taken up bodily into heaven. And so they therefore uniquely represented all mankind because all of us are going to come to one of those two ends. We're either going to die and be buried or we're going to be raptured when the Lord Jesus comes back and we meet him in the air. So on that mountain, there were Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. On that mountain, there were examples of those who would meet the Lord in death and those who will meet him in the rapture, Moses and Elijah. But then another question comes to my mind as I sit here thinking about them, and it comes from verse number 5. When Peter says, wow, it's good that, good that we're here, Lord. Let's build a tabernacle, one for you and one for Moses and Elijah. Does a question come to your mind when you read that verse? There ought to be a question that comes to your mind. How in the world did Peter know who Moses and Elijah were? There was no Google back then. There was no way that they could have gone and figured out what these people looked like. Moses had been dead for 1,400 years and Elijah for about 900 years. One of my favorite commentators on Mark, somebody that I go to often and I think is really brilliant, he said this. He said, quote, maybe they addressed each other by name in their conversation. That was his answer. I was mildly disappointed in that answer. I don't think he, I don't think he hit that one too well. Picture it. Peter wakes up from his sleep just in time to hear Moses said, now, Jesus, let me introduce myself. My name is Moses. And let me introduce to you my friend Elijah. Maybe you remember him from a little incident on Mount Carmel. Ridiculous. 
Uh, I don't think that's true at all. I don't think they wore name tags. I don't think any of that stuff was necessary. They knew each other. They knew each other. Jesus knew them, and he knew them. Or, yeah, whatever I, whatever I said there. They knew him, and he knew them. And not only that, uh, Peter knew Moses, and Peter knew Elijah. It doesn't say it, but I believe that Moses knew Peter and James and John just the same. The Bible tells me, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. First John chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 13, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Imagine walking down the street in glory, and here comes Moses walking the other way. And he walks up and says, hi, Bill, how are you doing? He's going to know who I am. He's going to know who every one of you are. And you're going to know who he is. You see, in this glorious thing that... This transfiguration story, we have not only a glorious picture of what Jesus is going to be, we also have a picture of what we are going to be, what the future holds for us. Notice that each of them had a recognizable body, though I would suggest better in every way. I think Luke says that they were glorified bodies. Elijah and Moses did not appear in some otherworldly form. They were recognizable as men. So too will we be. Not some ethereal ghost, as we are now. Only fixed. Made whole. Better. No longer broken or sick or lame or blind or hurting or cancerous or in pain or feeble or misshapen or in any way imperfect. Bodies. Made as they were meant to be. Bodies. Made whole. Bodies like these on the mountain. So these three are talking. The next question comes to mind is, what was the subject of their conversation? What were they talking about? Luke, again, answers that question. He says, Behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what were they talking about? They were talking about the cross. They were talking about the coming death of the Savior. And and it wasn't just a sentence or two. Apparently, this was a long, drawn-out conversation. One commentator said that uh, verse 4, that little phrase, they were talking with Jesus is, and I'll give you this, I don't even understand what this means, but he said it is a periphrastic imperfect, whatever that means. Well, he tells us what it means. He says it implies a long conversation. Can you not wait for the day when we're in glory and we can have a long face-to-face conversation with our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Well, finally, of course, there's a question that we can't help but ask, and that has to do with Peter in verse number 5. What in the world was Peter thinking when he said what he said? And, of course, the question is answered in verse number 6. He wasn't really thinking at all. He was blurting out in fear, terror, actually. That phrase, greatly afraid, is is a word that means terrified. It's only used one other time in the Bible when it's speaking about great, trembling terror. One commentator said whenever Peter did not know what to do, he talked. Hughes added, what an amazing sight, luminous, dazzling. Jesus is talking to Moses, who had been dead over 1,400 years, and to Elijah, who had been gone about 900. If ever there was a time for silence, this was it. 
but enter Peter, a man who always had something to say when there was nothing to be said. True. I can't wait to meet Peter. Can you? He's one of those ones that I can really (laughs) relate to in Scripture, and I just cannot wait to meet him. So many questions, and there's many more we could explore. This was a truly phenomenal event that left an indelible mark on the hearts and souls of my, and minds of those who were there. John would always remember it. In John chapter 1 and verse number 14, he said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter would remember it always and write about it. He said, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What what a passage. What a story. Glimpses into so many truths are seen here. There will be a second coming in power and great glory. It will include the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. It will include those who have died, those who have been raptured. It will exalt Jesus and Jesus alone, according to verse number 7. And it will be a terrifying and awe-inspiring event according to verse number 6. But the central truth is seen in verse number 2. And in the few minutes that remain, I want us to just look at that. He was transfigured before them. Even more succinctly, the central truth is seen in that one word, transfigured, metamorphosis, transformed. Let me suggest just two very brief applications that I think just sum up this truth and that we can carry away from this and apply to our own lives. The first is this. Jesus was and will be transformed. Jesus was and will be transformed. What they saw for a moment is what Jesus will be, is for eternity. They saw him transformed from a suffering Savior to a victorious King. Now, I read the context in chapter 8. He had been teaching them the first part. He had been teaching them that the cross must come first. He had been pointing this out to the point where they were confused by it. Isaiah had said, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus had been teaching that side of the story. And yes, Isaiah's understanding of Messiah had to come first, but that's what Jesus had taught. That's what Peter had been so confused about earlier. But now here, here, they saw further down the timeline to when the suffering Savior would be the victorious and conquering king. John would write about that later in Revelation chapter 19 when he said, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. 
He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They saw that. They saw him transformed from a suffering Savior to a victorious King. They saw him transformed from one who must die to one who lives forever. He said, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. They saw him transformed from one who must go away to one who will never again leave us. John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. You see, Jesus was and will be transformed. That's what they saw on the mountain. They saw him transformed from a suffering Savior to a victorious King, from one who must die to one who lives forever, from one who must go away to one who will never again leave us. He was transfigured before them. That's one application. The other one I like even better, amazingly. It's hard to imagine that it could be better than that, but I think this is pretty good. You see, we are and will be transformed. Paul used the same word, metamorphosis, to describe what happens to those who are in Christ. Two places we see it, Romans chapter 12 and verse number 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. There it is. By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He also used it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed. There it is. Metamorphosis into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. When I trusted Jesus Christ, when you trusted Jesus Christ, a great metamorphosis occurred. We were transformed from a lost sinner to a saved saint. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. This great transformation has taken place. Second Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. We were transformed from defeated to victorious. Hallelujah. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace, Romans 6.14. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We were transformed from mortal to immortal. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Enter into the minds of 
Peter and James and John just for a moment. Climb 9,200 feet up that mountain. Stand there next to them. Think about their thoughts as their eyes wander from Jesus' shining face to the living faces of Moses and Elijah. These men died hundreds of years ago. But here they stand. They're not dead, but they're alive. The grave is not the end. J.C. Ryle said, let us see in the story of the transfiguration a remedy for such doubting thoughts as these. The vision of the holy mountain is a gracious pledge that glorious things are in store for the people of God. Their crucified Savior will come again in power and great glory. His saints, his saints will all come with him and are in safekeeping until that happy day. We may wait patiently for when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. In glory. Colossians 3 4. Just last evening, Brother Carl and I stopped in, at the Woodlands and visited with Geraldine, our sister. I understand she suffered a stroke this past Sunday. She's now under hospice care there and most likely taking her final steps in this earthly life. And as I watched her unresponsive form lying there, these transfiguration thoughts were filling my brain. Because he is, so soon will she be transformed, changed, glorified, fixed, made whole, never to die again. Transformed from mortal to immortal. He was transfigured before them. Do you see that? Do you see it, Christian? Do you see Jesus standing there so dazzlingly and brilliantly transfigured, surrounded by Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, letting them see for a moment what we will all see and be for eternity? Do you see it? It is the future of all who will but call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It is the future that all who are born again look forward to. It was and is his promise to his own. Soon past that scene of grandeur, but steadfast, changeless, sure, our blessed transfiguration is promised to endure. The manifested glory of our great Lord to see shall change us to his likeness as he is. We shall be.